The following podcast is a production of Mosaic in Whittier, California, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org. Hey, let me take a moment to, to pray with you because I have to shift gears here. And Father, I thank you for being good to us, and I thank you that you are a God who restores lives and puts things back together. But th- this morning, the reason why I pray to take the time out for these folks to hear what I have to say is this that some of us here are just tired and um, maybe we've had friends or family members disappoint us or hurt us. Um, maybe they were just you know, rethinking some of the mistakes and decisions we've made for the past few weeks or months or years or maybe we realize we've come to a point in our life where it's not where we want to be but we no longer can blame other people for that. We have to, we're recognizing that we've played a significant part in and where we are right now in our life. So this is what I pray. I pray that you would completely energize us by your your Holy Spirit. Not in a phony, silly, whistling in the dark, you know, inauthentic manner, but that you help us to embrace the hope that you bring. That you help us to live in, in that reality that there's never a finality because of your kindness and because of your mercy because of the friendship that you extend to us over and over and over again. So for that, we thank you. And I pray for my friends and family who are feeling just a little bit low energy this morning to experience that. In your son's name, amen. Hey, I'm going to show you a couple of slides. Um, When I went on vacation, no, I'm kidding. Um, uh, I know you can't really see this well, but, um, well, here's what I'm, this is actually something you've seen before. You just may not know it. Um, this is a significant piece of rock, actually. Um, may I point out a few things for you? Of course. Uh, I have the mic, so. This is actually uh, from our best traditions guess is where the Ark of the Covenant would have sat, right here. And this is a kind of a wall area where the Holies of Holies would have been separated from. And there's some other reasons why this rock is significant. It's significant to Christians and to uh, folks who are uh, Muslim, to the religion of Islam. Um, but this is, this is part of the reason why there may always be tension. So, but, so let, me, let me show you what you probably have, would be more familiar in seeing this big rock. And if you go to the next uh, couple of, there you go. That's it. That's what's inside the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. Um, this is the place that, um, where the Ark of the Covenant rested. This is where it's believed Muhammad, you know, left earth like a leap off point, as it were, if I, if I understand correctly. So it's significant to two very important world religions. Well, three, actually. And I, I bring this up because I'm, we're going to talk a little bit about this. When you hear the phrase, the Dome of the Rock, well, that's the rock that was in there that you just saw. And right now, though, let's go to First Chronicles chapter 21, and I'm going to read a, a couple of long passages to you. Last week, we talked about the idea of what do you do when your life completely blows up? When you've, you know, you've kind of crapped all over yourself and there's no hiding it anymore. And what, you know, then what do you do? And, and there's no way to um, get around it. There's no way to pretend it didn't happen. I mean, everybody sees it, smells it, knows it. And so we saw how David was trying to kind of hide and pretend that nothing was going on and it absolutely affected his emotional life, his spiritual life, his mental life. Finally, out of an act of kindness, God 
goes to him. And this is a, an important principle to remember. Usually when we feel that we've done something stupid in, let's say, you hold a view, you hold a core value that you completely violate. And, you know, you feel like at some level, well, I, now I can't face God or God doesn't like me. I, I, I have, please understand, this is actually the very reason why God says, I'm, I'm sending my son to restore your humanity. I, I don't expect you to have it together. And God is never the person where he's a stationary figure that we all have to try to you know, get to. He's always the one that moves towards us. And he especially, I, I would say, not especially, but he says, I, I, and I move towards folks who, who kind of understand that. You know, I, I, I give kindness and strength to folks who are humble, but I, I push back and I resist people who want to be proud. Maybe live in a little bit of denial of where they're at. So David tries the hiding game. God sends a friend to him, a man named Nathan. Nathan confronts him. David comes clean and begins to put back his life. The reason why I like David is because I kind of feel all the, you know, the highs and lows. Um, my wife will tell you, I, I normally don't run you know, warm. I mean, either I'm really in love with everything or you know, I hate everything. You know. and occasionally I passed normal, but I mean, it's on, either on the way up or down. And I feel like David is that guy. I see him as having these great moments of clarity, experiencing who he is and who God is. And then there's moments where, you know, great moments of depravity and just an awful human being. Hey, here's another one. Uh, this is David's worst second moment again. So we saw the first one where he commits adultery, then he indirectly commits murder to cover the adultery. And the result of that relationship is a, a son who dies. This is, um, this is probably a little bit earlier than that, uh, than that story. So let's go to 1 Chronicles 21 and says this, that Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Now from Beersheba to Dan means from south to north. It's just a, a way of saying the entire country. Then report back to me so that I may know how many there are. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does the Lord want to do, why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? If, um, if you read Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and I know that's kind of heavy, to, you know, a little bit heavy lifting to get through all those books because of all the different names and cities and countries, and you can get, you know, it's hard to keep track of it. But... Um, it's worth the work for all the understanding that you'll get and how much more the New Testament scriptures and the letters will seem a little richer to you. Plus, keep in mind that as we stand shoulder to shoulder with people from the original followers of Jesus, what they learned about following Jesus was from these writings. I mean, I think most of us think, oh, the New Testament, you know, that's where the action is. Jesus is there, you know, that kind of thing. But our family read the Old Testament. That's, that's how they learned how to follow and practice God. So this story is also found in 2 Samuel 24. And it's, it, there seems to be sort of a... In, in that chapter, it says that God does this, and here it says Satan does this. And, you know, if you're thoughtful and reflective at all, you, kinda have, you can sometimes kind of struggle, where does God end to begin? Where do we have free will? And I, this is not going to be that discussion that's going to resolve that at all. I am, I am going to say that I, it seems that the, there's this 
ability to limit and work with even our own freedom and evil's freedom, as it were. In this particular chapter, the where it's found, it's not in chronological order. Um, this is probably happens very early in the life of David. And in addition to that, whenever a census was taken in Israel, it was always meant to count the army. How many fighting men do we have? It, it happened before in Numbers, chapter 1 and 2, chapter 26. It's, it's not out of lines. It, so when Joab pushes back, like, hey, you know, don't, this is not a good idea. The reason is, is that in the past, whenever uh, there was a census to determine the size of an army, it was God who said to do this. I want you to count and see how many people are here. What, what seems to be happening here is that David is either gloating over the size of his army or is beginning to wonder, how much can I do based on the size of his army? Or maybe even have a campaign where he's going to continue to take land and territory that God hasn't said, I want you to take or I want you to do. And so right off the bat, there's a couple of things I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about when I read this, that um, we often decide to do the things that we feel God is asking us to do based on our ability. Oh, I think I can do that. Well, that's awesome, but if there isn't something that's a little bit disturbing or frightening or, or, or a little bit seems bigger than you can do, it may not be what, what God's asking you to do. I mean, Ephesians makes it clear that in this letter that Paul wrote to his friends in the city of Ephesus that, hey, you know, uh, what God plans for your life is more than you can think about, more than you can imagine. Um, and so we sometimes sell ourselves short because we base it on what we can do. The second thing is, is that um, even if it's a good thing, if God hasn't asked you to do it, it may not be a good thing for you. And so God seems to move in here. And, and, and here's the other final note I want to point out. It's funny how there are some circumstances that bring out the worst in you or the, the stupid in you. Uh, someone, someone shaking head. Yeah, so, I mean, I had that just not very long ago. Um, this morning when I woke up. And the, you know, I mean, it, it happens. You realize, wow, I thought I was a little bit more together and I kind of have a, a crack in the chink in the armor, as it were. And this seems to be David's moment where there's, God wants to drive a little bit, some of his pride, some of his maybe self-assurance out. And so he allows this moment to occur. In verse 4, it continues that the king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab reported the number of the fighting men unto David. In all Israel, there were about 1,100,000 men who could handle the sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. And this command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. So in 2 Samuel, you'll see that he goes east from Jerusalem, starts to go counterclockwise. Along the way, David realizes, man, that, wasn't, that was kind of a dumb idea. I should not have done this. He sort of repents, relents, stops. Joab wasn't eager to count either. The Levites weren't counted because they were the, the priests. Benjamins weren't counted. They had been counted before. So the whole thing stops. So what starts off like, we should do this. Like, oh man, that was dumb. I should stop doing this. Unfortunately, the consequences have sort of begin to kick in. Um, years ago, I met a friend who was um, in N.A., um, not that I was there. I'm just saying I knew this guy. Uh, but anyway, the point is that so he, he, we were talking about spiritual matters, you know, and, and he was saying, well, the God of my understanding doesn't punish. And I remember thinking, I, I bet you if you use again, you're going to discover differently. You know, punishment is built into the system. I, I don't, you know, this is my two cents and you can do with it what you want. I, I don't see God directly, you know, punishing every single thing. It's just built into the system. 
If, if you do something dumb, there'll be some payback. You know, uh, um, and occasionally we kind of ignore and blow by the consequences. Um, we don't consider that we might be doing something dumb. In fact, uh, let me put it another way. I don't, know if I'm, I don't know if that made sense to me. How many of you know how, what gas smells like? Okay. Actually, you're all wrong. Gas doesn't smell. The scent is put in so that you can smell it because it's so volatile. Right? This, this, is, this is what I mean about sometimes the punishment is built into the system. God put it into the system that if you, if, if you want to push up and against and violate and, and you know, you know, live less than human, the system is built so that you will have some pain. And the pain is just to kind of like, oh man, let me get back to doing what's healthy and right so I don't injure myself further or injure others further. And this is how I understand how it is that sometimes we, we reap the consequences of what we do. Like, oh my gosh, you know, God hates me. No, he actually cares for you. That's why he built this into the system so that when, when you did something stupid, it would come back to bite you. So, verse 8, then David said to God, hey man, I, I have sinned greatly. I've blown it by doing this. So now I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. So the Lord said to Gad, David's seer, well, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to give you three options. This is like going to go get your, go, go get a switch, go get a belt. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. That is, wouldn't that be awful? How many, did you guys ever get parents that said you can pick your punishment? Because I always chose ice cream. <laughs> Lactose intolerant? It's actually very bad for me. They didn't see it that way, however. So, he, uh, where is it? Okay, verse 11. So David, so Gad went to David. Gad's, is under, Gad's another prophet. That's who this guy is. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says, take your choice. Three years of famine. No, pass on that one. Three months of being swept away before your enemies, which means armies would fail and people would die with the swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravishing every part of Israel. Now then, decide. How should I answer the one who sent me? Uh, here, here's awful, here's really bad, here's terrible. Uh, you know, which one do you pick? I, I guess at some level, I, I, David chooses, what are we going to read here? Uh, verse 13, David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress, as we all would be. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great, but don't let me ha- fall into the human hands. And so the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. Now, this is, I, I, I don't know what you do with that information. Some of you who might be sensitive and thinking like, wow, that seems a bit unfair. One guy screws up, 70,000 people die, 70,000 men, 70,000 that includes fathers, uncles, brothers, sons, people that had nothing to do with what this king, you know, what David was ever, whatever he was processing. And I, I don't know how to, you know, answer maybe all of your objections, but here's how I, I guess I can kind of live with the tension. Number one, I, I got to think somewhere along the line, if God is who he says he is, that he probably has a keener sense of justness and fairness and kindness than I do. 
I mean, whenever I push back, I'm like, well, that's not fair. That's not good. Uh, At some level, I'm saying is that I'm fairer and kinder than God is, or that I have a better understanding of what he should have done. I'm more just than he is. And I got to tell you, honestly, I just can't get there for myself. I mean, I'm kind of aware of my own lack of justice and kindness and fairness at times. The second thing is is that I, I, I have to wonder, in all my experiences with God and the way that I've gotten the mulligan after mulligan in my life, do over for those of you who don't golf. I don't either, but the point is, is that I've heard that's what it means. <laughs> Actually, I, I, I do play golf. I play in the 80s. If it gets any hotter, I won't go. And um, see, just two people got that. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yeah, I'm here. Um, in all my experiences of, of experiencing God and what I've seen in the lives of other people, even when I don't get what he's doing, you know what I've discovered? That I can trust him even when I don't understand what he's doing. And this is where I, we can get the phrase that he has been trustworthy. We, you and I, this is where we have to maybe also begin to accept this, if you, if you wrap your mind around it. We don't get exhaustive explanations or information about anything. What, I mean, what do you know everything about? One subject, that you know everything about that subject. One thing. Comes to God, we want answers for everything. And I, I don't know what level of, I don't know, but it's arrogance of my part or, or just inability to wrap my mind about what I'm asking, I just began to learn to live with ambiguity because I can trust this person. I don't have a real lust for certainty. It's obvious the way I forget things. But uh, so am I more fair and kind than God? Uh, I can't get there. Do I, do I really demand of him to explain everything? Well, or do I just trust him? So, but... One final thought. If I was David and I was listening to everybody, every woman or other men and children crying and moaning and mourning the loss of people who had just dropped dead, and think if you're, you're one of the soldiers and your buddy dies, like, are you next? 70,000, that's not a small number. And it's not a large country. And, you know, take away all the sounds that are going on in the, in, in, in the open air from jet noise to music to hip-hop, thank goodness, and then all they take away all that stuff, um, except for Wu-Tang, that you, know, you, you, you would hear all the echoes of people's mourning going on through, the, and, and you're the guy that caused it. So if you can understand what it feels like when you cause somebody else to cry because you were just completely stupid and selfish and negligent and just, you know... Uh, profligate and you cause somebody else to weep over what you've done. Now just magnify that by 70,000 families. You're the one that causes that. And so David is experiencing, man, I I have so blown this. And uh, verse 15, and God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it, relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing at the threshing floor of this fellow. We'll just call him Arnold, shall we? Uh, The Jezebite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth and with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. I have no idea what he saw. So I won't pretend to you that I can can understand this other than he, the curtain peels back. He gets a look into the spiritual realm. He sees the actual death angel, this person causing this, you know, this being. And in 2 second, in second Samuel 24, it says that the person was standing on this particular threshing floor owned by this guy named Arnold. 
And David and the elders like, man, we, we're, we've blown it. How, what do we need to do to make this right? Verse 17, David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I, the shepherd, have sinned and done wrong, but these are the sheep, and what have they done? Lord, my God, let your hand fall on me and my family, but don't let this plague remain on your people. This is you get kind of a glimpse into David when he has his, like his best moment that he is, you know, as God would say of him, he's, he's a guy after my own heart. He, he identifies that much that he's, you know, let this fall on me, not on these people. So then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David, listen, go up, build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of this fellow, the Jebusite. So David went up in, in obedience to the word that God, that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. And while um, Arnold was threshing wheat, he s- turned and saw the angel. His four sons were with him, hid themselves. Um, verse 21, David approached. And uh, when Arnold looked and saw him, he left the threshing floor, bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, hey, let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped and sell it to me at full price. All right, let me stop here. I think we might be losing some folks. That rock that you saw is the threshing floor. That's what the Dome of the Rock is covering. And, and uh, so you take wheat, you throw it on the ground, you, run, you uh, run it over with a heavy stone, it cracks, kernel out, and then uh, you take this big like rake-like thing, throw it up in the air, and then the shaft blows away. What was the, the, the what was covering the kernel, and so that's usually it was always done in a higher place, and so Dave, that's where David sees this angel, and he goes up to it to buy the place, buy the land. Um, verse 24. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 23. Hey, take it, my lord, the king. Do whatever it pleases him. Look, I, I'll give you the oxen for the burnt offerings and the threshing pl- uh, sledges for the and for the wood and. The wheat for the grain offering, I'll give you all of this. And David replied, here's an interesting principle. No, I insist on paying full price. Why? I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. I won't won't give anything that doesn't cost me. So David paid him 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the name of the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the, bur- on the altar of burnt offerings. Building an altar, you know, maybe some of us, like myself, you come from a Roman Catholic tradition, you think an altar really kind of cool and beautiful. And no, it would have been a pile of stones. That would have been the altar. It would have been just, I'm going to say just. What makes it significant is what it was set up for, but it would have been to us, it looked like just a pile of stones. So he puts an animal on there, um, slits its throat, bleeds it, has to prep it, puts it on there, it burns which is the burnt offering, which is meant to cover or put a, a pause on our moral crimes. In the second Samuel, we'll read in here about there's this something called a fellowship offering. That's what means we're friends again. We get to eat together. And so, you know, some of it will be, the, it's burnt, some of it is eaten, and that says you're having a meal with God. Just grabbing a bite with the Almighty. And... Um, Verse 27, then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put his sword back in its sheath. I, I would have loved to have seen this. This is a great CG, isn't it? Like God talks, all right. Uh, at that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Adam, the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of the burnt offering were at, at that time at the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God. Why? Because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. 
This is something I've noticed that's kind of humorous to me. Every time a guy sees an angel in the, in the Bible, freaks him out, scared, doesn't want to, no, I'm, I'm good, keeps a distance, you know. When women see an angel in the Bible, they just start talking to him, like, you know, oh, hey, so, someone else to make friends with, you know, and um, <laughs> where'd you get your shoes? And so, uh, <laughs> just saying, I didn't write it, I'm just saying it's there. Um, Gibeon is about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem, if you're looking at a map. And so a couple of things are happening here. Look, uh, you know, you, we all saw the Ten Commandments. We all saw Chuck Heston there as Moses. So the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, all that was in a tent. It's at Gibeon. The Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem in a tent. There's going to come a time in 2 Samuel 7 where David is so happy and grateful for all that God has done for him. He says, man, I live in a palace and God lives in a tent. Something about that seems odd. And so he tells God through the prophet, I want to build God a house. And God says, I'll I'll tell you what, I don't need a house, but I'll build you one. And he begins to describe David's future in terms of his descendants and his ancestors, which includes, uh, we know, uh, Jesus Christ. And he talks about, uh, there's going to come a time when you, you know, this, there will be a house built. It won't be by you, but it will be by a member of your family, a descendant. And so David has this moment where, it's, I think it's the only time in the scripture where, it's, where it says that he sat down before God and just said, wow, I'm, this is, you're an amazing person. You've given so much, and then you continue to give more. I'm going to turn to Micah chapter 7. I want to read something to you. It's in, the, it's in a version called The Message, so you may not have it. But I like the way this is said here in The Message. And it's verses 18 through 20. So it's Micah 7, 18 through 20. Where is the God who can compare with you? Wiping the slate clean of guilt. Let me stop right there and read it again. Where is the God who can compare to you, with you, wiping the slate clean of guilt, turning a blind eye, a deaf ear, to the past sins of your purged and precious people? You don't nurse your anger. You don't stay angry long. For mercy is your specialty. That's what you love the most. And compassion is on its way to us. You stamp out our wrongdoing. You sink our sins to the bottom of the ocean. You stay true to the word of our father Jacob and continue the compassion you showed grandfather Abraham. Everything you promised our ancestors from a long time ago. David's uh, first big mistake, I mean, it's a whopper. I mean, you know, adultery, then murder. Um, His first son from that relationship between Bathsheba, who the scriptures will always call Uriah's wife, died. Uh, Anybody know his second son from that relationship? Solomon, yeah. David's second mistake was this census counting. For whatever reason, he did it. And, you know, you, you can't say for certainty because the scriptures don't tell us. But it wasn't something that was, you know, healthy in, in connection to God. And he buys the land where he sees the angel to offer and offers the sacrifices for that piece of land. And he does what 
is I told you the burnt or the sin offering, then the fellowship offering, I told you the meaning of what that is. Now I want to jump over to Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. And I'll read you this last part and close with a couple of comments. Second Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. He was on the threshing floor of this man, the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Um, this is where it may seem, oh, I don't know, we come toward the end of the story, maybe it seems a little anticlimactic. I, I want to explain to you why it's not. Long before Bathsheba, long before the murder, long before Solomon, when David was a young king sitting in his throne, just considering all that God had done for him, and he tells God what he wants to do for God, God says, ah, <laughs> bro, I'm good. I, don't, I haven't had a house ever. Don't need one now. But here's what I'll do for you. Now, I, I got to think somewhere along the line when Nathan talked to him about David's sleeping around and David's murder, I have to think somewhere along the line that... Um, that this promise was completely, you know, well, I've really blown this one. There is no way that God's going to be kind now. I remember being in my 20s. It's only been three years. That, um, 30. But the point is, is that uh, th there's, you know, there's very little you can do in your 20s to absolutely screw your life up for the rest of your life. I mean, Short of murder when you're in prison, I guess, you know, and, and even then, right, you can get a degree and go on with your life in some ways. But there's very little you could do. I mean, you have to be intentional, focused, you know, driving so much energy to completely ruin your life and put it in the toilet and have God reach the handle and flush it. It's just, that's just not reality. You know, you can if you really focus, I guess. But it's just, it, even, even reading Micah, you, you, you discover that God says, I, if you read it in King James or NIV, says, I, I, I delight or take pleasure in showing mercy. I enjoy this. And no matter how great our dads were in our earthly realm, and sometimes, you know, they, they were just not so good at all, we often take our experiences with our dads or coaches or uncles that were significant in our lives, and place it on God and say, yeah, I remember I, I got three shots. Or I remember when my dad told me I was a loser or I was an idiot. Or my dad, you know, called me a whore. Or my dad was just done with me. Or, you know, and, and so you blow it once or twice with God and you think, I'm going to get that reaction. And, and just, that's just not the reality. Or you think, as I have done, that, you know, you get to a place where someone can't love you anymore. You've done that thing. You've, you've been that person too long. And so, you know, like, he, God can put up with me, but surely he's not going to keep his promises at this point. Not now. Not after this. So when David asks to build this temple, God reminds him, um, actually, you're not going to be able to build it. It'll be your son, Solomon. But you get to collect all the stuff for it. And your son will build it. And here's what's interesting about this. After 
David blows up his life with this adultery murder, after David blows it up again when he causes the death of so many people with counting, God takes these two horrible moments of his life to bring something incredible and amazing in the entire nation for the people of God. His, his own presence. This is the place where God talked about, listen, you know, there, there are going to be times when a foreigner, a stranger, even my people will wonder where I'm at. They, they can look east and see where I'm at. They, they may want to come and be near me. I'm, I'll be here physically in a way that's, that I'm uniquely not in other places. And guess what, David? I know that you've been, you've screwed up, but you get to be the guy that I'm going to bring this to pass through your life. Um, I can recall um, uh, when I was eight, uh, eight, nine, when I, when I was a, a young kid, let's just say, and, and serving as an altar boy uh, in church, I had a great experience. No, no, you know, I just had a great experience with the priest that I knew that uh, I remember thinking, wow, that's the epitome of a guy, you know, of a man. He helps people connect to God. And I remember thinking, man, I, I'd like to do that. But, you know, I stuttered. I was awkward. I, I had respiratory illnesses, you know, started smoking at eight. So there were some issues, mistakes were made. Um, and, uh, and then life went on, you know, made more mistakes and, uh, and discovered that most police don't have a sense of humor. And, and uh, you know... <laughs> which is always humor they, they, they knock you around they watch your head sir like hey I got a black guy and a bloody nose I'm not, <laughs> really the last thing I'm worried about is bumping my head here in the car um, I had it coming by the way so the point is, is that um, that I remember when I felt God was asking me to do this and I, I can tell you my first reaction uh, no I thought there's enough idiots who work in church they don't need another one and I don't own anything made out of polyester. And I thought that's, <laughs> I don't want to put the yes in polyester in my wardrobe, so I wasn't going to do it. But, uh, uh, <laughs> wish I was kidding. I remember then processing that further and thinking, you know, I, I, oh, I remember, I told my wife. So I'm sure, surely she'll see the humor in this. If anybody knows what a train wreck my life has been at times, surely. Mrs. Martinez, front row seat, applied the triage, surely, you know. I remember she, she, and this is the weird part, God had told her too. No bueno. So I remember telling my wife, hey, you know, this, these people are asking me to do this, and I'm, I'm you know, she, oh yeah, what did, you, what did you think? I said, I'm making good money, why would I do that, you know? Again, being honest, just, just putting it out there. As I've said before, I don't mind her being upset with me because that's just kind of how the normal reality is in a relationship. But when she's disappointed, it's like, ah, oh, man. She looked me in the eye and said, then what has your life been for? And I remember thinking, Are you, surely you, of all people, should be with me on this, you know, that I should not be doing this whole thing, right? Then I've had friends ask me, how did you get your call from God? Watching Lord of the Rings one night, I was, um, again, just, Putting it out there. End of first movie, Frodo, right? The ring, the whole stupid thing with the you know, Mount Doom and the whole. So I'm watching Lord of the Rings, minding my own business. Not expecting God to break in. And so uh, it comes to the end of the movie where he's at the river. And he's deciding whether to go forward by himself or not. And uh, he has that moment where he's recalling Gandalf, the Christ figure in the story. 
who says to him, you don't get to decide the seasons and times of your life. You just only get to decide what you're going to do with them. Very clear to me how afraid I was of this and how I, I had forgotten what I felt God had told me as an eight-year-old boy. And he reminded me again that evening through this dumb movie. I'm convinced God speaks primarily through the scriptures, but if you're open, he'll actually talk to you through other forms of media, like the movies. This is why I go so often. I want to hear from God. So anyway, the, <laughs> speak to me. Yes, one please for the uh, 12 o'clock show. <laughs> all right. So I took the job. I said all that to say this. I think at times you get to a place, you're in your 20s, you're in 30s, your 40s, your 50s, and you, and you forget all the things that, that you had committed to God. Now you made sincere promises and, and commitments and, and you had great clarity that God was speaking to you about certain things he was going to do with your life. And you know what happens along the way? We forget. We just, it just seems to be our, our worst crime is our lack of remembering what God tells us. Which is why it's interesting that we have so many you know, ceremonies or gatherings that just to remind us over and over again of what God has done. Like elements, communion. And almost every festival in Israel was just to remind people what God has done over and over. Here's what I want to point out. That I think often, because we have made mistakes and things have gone wrong, that we feel disqualified from whatever God had shared with us we want to do. In fact, we, we're even embarrassed to, to admit to ourselves that maybe we're meant for something else more. That God has plans to continue to use our lives in different ways. I want to I encourage you to consider this. Whatever you said in secret, whatever you promised privately, that, that God didn't forget. That because he delights in showing kindness, because he, part of his job seems to be putting lives back together and restoring sanity and releasing people from addictions and weirdness and all sorts of nonsense, that that actually seems to be the business he's in. That's actually what he seems to enjoy doing. And, and here's the other part. This is how he communicates to the rest of the world that he actually is there. I mean, I guess he could do this amazing thing and overwhelm people, but he bets the farm on love. He bets everything that if, as we love him and then love other people, that folks will be drawn to him. David's two biggest acts of stupidity resulted in the building of the temple where God would be physically in a, in a way with his people that he wasn't before. So I wonder, what, what, what has God told you that you just forgot about? That you just think, oh, well, that was then, but I'm sure by now he's changed his mind after you know, things I've done wrong. I don't, I don't think so. And I encourage you to have that conversation with him. And let me pray and dismiss with you, and we have a few announcements. Uh, and we'll dismiss for the morning. Father, I, I do want to thank you because you're, you're kinder than we even give you credit for. Um, your mercy, your generosity, um, the grace that you show us is much larger than we expect even. But over and over you, you, want to, you remind us how often it is that this is the very thing that you take pleasure in doing in restoring what we've damaged. And over and over again, you're, you're the one that seeks us out and pursues us to restore and reconnect the things that we damage. 
So this morning as we finished looking at the whole King series and David's life in specifically, that when we get to a place where we start thinking, boy, I've, I've just done that dumb thing now and it's never, this hope that I have is never going to happen, that that's really not the end of our story. That our past does not determine our future. Um, that you're actually the one who writes our stories. Help us to latch on to you with hope. Experience your hope, experience your power, experience your kindness to become the men and women uh, that we were meant to be. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production by Mosaic Whittier, a community of faith, hope, and love. For more information about Mosaic gatherings and events, please visit mosaic.org.